and good evening, wherever and whenever you may be, and welcome to episode 89 of the Fade to Black podcast. I'm Hannah Flint. I'm a mom woman. And I'm Clarice Lockery. This week, he's making a list. He's checking it twice. David Harbour's Santa Claus is coming to town <laughs> in Violent Night. Noah Bombach faces the apocalypse in his adaptation of Don Dillalo's White Noise. We click our heels together three times and enter the world of Lynch Oz. And it's your Christmas or mine with Asa Butterfield and Cora Kirk. Plus, a mom talks to Rebecca Hall about her psychological thriller, Resurrection, and Margaret Brown and Joyce Davis about documentary, Descendant. Plus, in our hot take, we break down all the trailers that premiered at Brazil's CCXP convention. Indiana Jones, Guardians of the Galaxy, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Transformers, and a little cocaine bear too. Um, I haven't watched any of these trailers. <laughs> Uh, but first, let's catch up with the crew. Hi, guys. You glad to have me back? Yeah, no, you know, you, you did such a great job as our international correspondent. We thought that you, we, we, we'd try you out on the on the full, full thing. Um. <laughs> so, yes. I can't even Welcome. remember what I said in my little dispatch. Did I talk to you about people just getting their phones out? You did. You did say that. Madness. Yeah. Wow. But, yeah, I mean, your Instagram was very envious for those, for those few days, you look like you're having a great time. Yeah, I promise I did see some films. <laughs> <laughs> you like you were eating yeah. all of the food too. Oh my God, I was. It was just madness. It was just mm. so good. Oh, now I'm just back to eating my boring soups. <laughs> <laughs> and stir fries. And mm. falafel and homie wraps from prep. <laughs> How you guys been? Yeah, no, we've been good. Um, I say we, but I know exactly what Carissa's been up to. What have I been up to? She has changed her profile pics precisely 70,000 times over the last week <laughs> because of this oh, new app. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to tell the people what app you have fallen in love with, Chris? It's really not interesting. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like those stupid AI apps because I want to be a painting. So I am a painting mm. now. And that's it. I tried it out though, Clarice. I was like, I went in it and it made me look worse. <laughs> And I was like, "What did do you have, did you pay for it or something?" Because the only thing I look good in is when it was a comic book version. I was like, "Oh, someone paid me like one of your comic book characters." <laughs> yeah, I, I you have to pay. Yeah, for the AI thing, you have to pay a bit of money. Um, but oh, maybe I'm too it's. Tight. <laughs> <laughs> and also, you're like already very hot, so I think it's not. I don't think the AI. I think the AI is for ugly people. <laughs> You're not ugly. Shut your mouth. <laughs> not in the no, AI, no. I'm not. <laughs> in the AI um, universe. You do look sensational. The Matrix. <laughs> I love it. It's sort of the storm before the calm right now, at least for me. Uh, the next couple of weeks are going to be very busy. Exciting busy, but busy nonetheless. And then when Avatar's released, hopefully I can start to wind down, get in the Christmas mood buy a few presents for the family, maybe for you two too. I'm still thinking about it. You know, depends, depends, depends on a few factors. The no, gift of your friendship is all I need. Oh, <laughs> well, thank you very much, Hannah. Um, so, so yeah. Um, but is, 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 is it the same for you guys or you, have you, have you already started to wind down uh, for the Christmas period? I'm going to Iceland next week. So that's a yes on Hannah's front. <laughs> I'm going to be doing some red carpet presenting at the European Film Awards. Oh, nice. I've never travelled so much in my life. I feel really bad about my carbon footprint. <laughs> As well you should. 
just destroying the planet, Hannah. I blame you and solely you. It's all me. It's me. I did it. I caused the end of the world. <laughs> Hannah and the apocalypse. <laughs> right. Well, hopefully it won't be apocalypse and we'll resurrect. Uh, that was a really terrible segue. Here is the trailer for Resurrection. Have you ever done anything bad? When I was young, I did something bad. Unforgivable. There was this man, and he was handsome, charismatic, and he noticed me. And I guess I wasn't as tough as we thought. What happened? Nothing. I just, I just feel a bit off. Wake me up, wake me up, I can't wake up, save me, save me from the nothing I've become. I love that you literally don't know the words. <laughs> Should I do that again? I, no, I'm not, no, no, keep no, that, I want that. No, no, that was classic. It was, that was beautiful. Um, so, Resurrection, a woman's carefully constructed life gets upended when an unwelcome shadow from her past returns, forcing her to confront the monster she's evaded for two decades. This is written and directed by Andrew Siemens and the stars Rebecca Hall, Grace Kaufman, Michael Esper, and Tim Roth. Uh, always a fan of seeing Tim Roth in things. Have been a fan since watching a show called Lie to Me, which was a lot of fun back in the day. Um, but this is all about Rebecca Hall, uh, who is incredible in this film, as she is in all the films she stars in. She is one of the best actors working today. And it was a real pleasure, a real treat to get to speak to her about this film in which she does like a five minute one take and just absolutely nails it. It's, uh, it's the, the camera is centered on her the entire time during this take. And it's just an incredible performance. Uh, so, yeah, we talked about that. We talked about working with Tim Roth. Uh, we talked about how she is amazing at doing this type of psychological thriller film and what a script that she gets handed needs to have in order for her to say yes to it because she gets offered so many of them. So it's a, it a fun, it's a fun chat uh, and a very interesting chat as well. Me and Rebecca Hall. Enjoy. Welcome to the Paperback Podcast, Rebecca Hall. How are you? I am very well. How are you? I am good. I'm good. Although, well, let, let's talk about it because first of all, con- congratulations on Resurrection, first and foremost. Uh, really great performance, unsurprisingly. The last few minutes of this film messed me up. Um, so I'm going to be sending you a bill for therapy. Keep an eye out for my invoice because, wow. I'm sorry, I'll just, keep, I'll just put it on the, you know, the tab because I, a lot of people have said exactly the same thing to me. So clearly I'm like uh, paying for a lot of people's therapy. Or maybe they should have just gone to therapy before seeing the film. I don't know. Don't why it should be on me. <laughs> you bring up a good point. You make a good point. Well, let's, <laughs> let's backtrack to you oh. reading the script. for. Oh, hello. Who is this? <laughs> that's amazing i love that um when you first read this looking at where the crazy directions it goes was this like an immediate yes for you or did it take us no okay i was actually on my way to 
well, it was on my way to promote um Nighthouse at Sundance. The Nighthouse hadn't come out yet. Mm-hmm. And I was like, the last thing that I want to do is another like heavy hitting sort of sort of <laughs> everything is on my shoulders sort of situation. Um, but I had also just directed my first film. Yes. And and I'd come out of that experience being a little bit like um I don't know. I just had a slightly different perspective on what acting jobs I was going to take. Mm. And I think perversely, a little bit of me was a was sort of, well, unless I have to climb an incredibly steep mountain, like mm. what's the point? Because I really love directing so much. Mm. Like it stimulates and challenges me so much. Like I don't, I don't know that I'm going to go off that course unless it's like a really big ask for me as an actor like something that I'm really genuinely a little bit frightened to take on and and so it was that sort of particular storm that I read this script in and it it was just one of those like I found it completely brazen and Mm. outrageous and um just ambitious in its sort of crazy hubris, you know, and I, I, something about that just appealed to me. And I was like, yeah, I want to see this happen because chances that the chance that this can actually be pulled off, that this will actually work as a movie are um, actually incredibly slim, which is, which is, I I realized in retrospect, an insane reason to take a job. It was literally because I thought there's no way that this could work that I decided to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Curiosity was just too intense. I was like, well, you know, I want to see what happens with this. Like, how 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 could this go down? That is so interesting. Was there a day when you were working on it that you felt more confident about how it was going to turn out? Or was it only when you saw it full final film on the big screen that you Yeah, were no, like, I, I, I never know. I mean, I never know. On, on both sides of the camera, my experience is that you never know. Like, every, everyone goes into a movie with the best possible intentions and the best possible hopes for it. And you never know what's going, I mean, you know, nobody sets out to make a bad movie, I suppose is what I'm saying. It's like, <laughs> you have no idea. You just like, you pour everything into it and and some hit and some don't. I didn't know with this one until I was watching it. I was like, oh, I've got no idea. Like, did I just take an insanely large risk? Um, but I like taking risks. That's really, that's really always been a driving force for me in my career. Mm. So you know, this felt like a pretty large one. And then when I saw the movie, I was like, oh no, he he knows what he's doing actually. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! <laughs> um, yeah, no. And there were moments during the shoot that I felt that as well. I never felt, I never felt um, unsafe with Andrew as a director for a sort of, an insane idea as it was. And the big, and the big ask that he was asking of me as an actor, I always felt quite protected by him so you know it was it was a nice environment sorry about Vivi just leave no, me this is only adding to the interview this is fantastic. <laughs> no need to apologize at all um I read in previous interviews that you talked about mapping out your characters on paper what are yeah. some of the things you're noting down about this character as you're doing that oh let me think. I mean, I have the map somewhere, but so I'd, you know, be able to answer this more precisely, I guess, one day when I decide to get them all out of the drawer and actually look at them. But I'm looking forward suppose, to that day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I suppose with her, it was, um, I remember having conversations with Andrew where there was a lot of chat about, you know, what was her, what was her backstory? And I, at a certain point, I mean, it was sort of interesting because I was like, well, 
it, it's interesting to get to play it British because even though it's set in America, you know, you you really get the sense of um, these people are in exile a little bit, like she's running away from something. So so there was this whole question of like, what is what were the particular details of her past life? Like, how is she even, I mean, there's the event that we find out about or mm-hmm. event or whatever, but then there's also the kind of interim period, the kind of raising a baby as a single mother until, you know, till they're 18 at the point where the movie picks up and, you know, what, how, what is she, how has she got a career and how has she done all these things by herself? Mm-hmm. Um, given that she's sort of born out of a, a particular traumatic event in her late adolescence. You know, and and that was interesting to think about. And I think that sort of did pop into my chart quite a lot, this sort of sense of she is fierce. Like I kept thinking that she is a fierce, fierce lioness who has done completely improbable things, like raise a child by herself, start like get a successful career, blah, 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 blah. Because she's in a sense sort of created an entirely different identity as this lioness in order to run away from something else. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I get. That. Are you also because I'm imagining this film shoots a la sequence, um, and you are going through sort of a gauntlet of emotions in this. Yeah. When you're mapping out your character, do you map sort of where your character is and emotion, your, your emotional state as you go along? Because you chart it very well. It's just not sort of a not to one hundred thing. There's stages. No, so there are stages. And, yeah. 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 I tend. I tend to. That's that's the sort of game that I play with myself whenever I do anything it's sort of I try to imagine the journey very precisely on paper as a big drawing and so and then I you know I sort of jot down the phrase that best triggers my memory of when I was in that imaginative state so that when you're on set and everything is out of order you've got a phrase that just triggers you back into knowing exactly like what level you're at and and there have been jobs in the past where it's been more numbers like you know, we're at a six here or we're at a four here. Yeah, but yeah. there's also, it's also phrases and it takes on, it's really, the, the process is a bit adaptable according to what the project is. What was the um, phrase uh, for, for this film? Well, there were, each scene was a different phrase. Oh, I mean, okay. that's really what the map is. It's like, gotcha. you know, like, what do you, what in this particular scene, where do you, what, what state do you come into the scene? Like what, mm. you know, what have you carried with you from the previous scene? And where are you going? Like, where do you need to hit by the end of the scene? So that there's a kind of ultimate connective tissue between everything, which hopefully helps people in the edit or not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sure it did. Um, I wonder about the conversations you were having with one of your co-stars, Tim Roth, um, who is great in this film. Very creepy. Yeah. God, yeah. very creepy. But your characters have a very interesting dynamic. Um mm what were those conversations like about you building that relationship? I mean, honestly, if I make a bit honest, I don't think we had any conversations. Oh, interesting. Um, he came in and shot for the last 10 days. So we'd shot everything else. So yeah. for the, the first, I mean, this was a very short shoot. It was like, we did it in like 19, 20 days or something insane. Mm. Um, and for the first like 11 or so yeah. days, um, yeah, that's right. Maybe he only came in for five. I'm trying to remember. Like, well, anyway, for, there was felt like a whole lifetime of movie that we shot before he mm. even shut up. And i had been just imagining him, you know, and, and imagining what he was going to do and, and imagining what, you know, the, this thing that I was scared of. And in a way, it was kind of 
it was kind of good to have it like that because you know the distance from Margaret has also experienced distance from this character so in a sense like her understanding of him is a lot through her memory mm. which at a certain point becomes you know figurative probably anyway so it's like it was a sort of interesting process and then he he turned up and he just came with the goods you know he was just doing he was just in it doing the scene and I had to just then respond to what he was was giving and there wasn't really much chat about it it was just like let's do it let's do it which frankly I like because it it I think you know there is a there is an element of any kind of movie acting that is very prepared like you prepare like you mm. think prepare and you do all this but I think you're sort of um you know you're not <laughs> you're up shit great without a paddle excuse me if you sort of plot out every facial expression and every decision that you're going to make in front of a mirror or something mm -hmm. because a camera knows when you are performing like the best thing you can give to a camera is just a reaction so that you know if you trust the other actor and to have done their pre-prep and then you just turn up and you play the scene I think the best results happen yeah. um and there was a, there was a certain amount of like aftercare necessary with this one because <laughs> he's playing someone who's so abusive that it was kind of like you know I didn't want to live in that, that all the time and I didn't want to create some sort of like weird power dynamic with him off camera I don't really I don't really believe in that I don't like it doesn't work for me so you know I in a sense, when the cameras weren't rolling, we were actually really friendly and silly with each other, just telling dumb anecdotes about <laughs> stories about other jobs and giggling. Um, and that for me was the best because I, if I stay in that space as an actor, then I remember that it's play, you know, that there is an element of like this, these are overgrown playgrounds that we're in. So you've got to keep it fun. You've yeah. got to do what you have to do to keep it fun, and that's different for everyone. Yes. A little bit of levity goes a long way, especially yeah. on a film like this. <laughs> especially <with something>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask about the single take monologue you have for seven mm. minutes, which is incredible. Is that a day that you have circled on your calendar and that you rev up toward, or is that something you like to get out of the way sort of early on in the schedule? Uh I don't think I, it, what it, we did. We were working at a budget level where I had no say in when it was going to crop up in the schedule. <laughs> I mean, um, but I do remember saying, "Please let me know and fix it." You know, mm. fix it so you're not moving. So you don't suddenly surprise me. Like that would have been the worst case scenario. It would be like, "Oh, we've changed some things in the schedule, and actually, we're shooting the seven minute monologue this afternoon." That would that would have been bad. So, <laughs> but once it was fixed in there, and I knew it was coming, then. Yeah, I mean, it ended up being, it was by far the most daunting thing on the page, but it ended up in many ways being the easiest thing to shoot. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't, it was kind of odd. Um, was there wasn't a lot of angles, you know, like he yeah. just, he just, he picks an angle, he shoots, you know, it was roll the camera. Okay, Rebecca, say the words. And mm -hmm. when the seven minutes were up, the scene was done. So, you know, I think we did, we did two takes. So in, in essence, we were yeah. done shooting that scene after half an hour. <laughs> like, <laughs> what was the reaction when you no doubt clearly nailed it for the first time? What was the reaction on set when I nailed yeah, it? Yeah, time? well, you nailed it first time out, I assume one take haul is what, probably what in the game is, but what, what was the reaction when, when, when that happened? <laughs> 
Um, yeah, I think everyone was quite surprised, actually. Really? I remember, <laughs> I remember the first AD being, I remember the first AD giving me a lot of like, um, like he was really nervous that day. And I remember him sort of, come, when I arrived on set, he was like, okay, so I've, you know, I've, I've really allotted four hours for this. So you've, you've got time and you're going to be okay. And, you know, we've prepped for this scene and everyone's really nervous about it. And also like Andrew was nervous about it too, because if it didn't hold on my face, he was going to have to shoot some sort of, you know, something to cut to, some sort of dreamy, like, you know, uh, flashback sequence, which he really didn't want and have to do. So, you know, I, I knew that the stakes were high, but I was trying to pretend that they weren't. Otherwise I wouldn't have gone through the day. Right. Um, and, you know, I was just like, well, I've, I've known, I know the words and the only thing I can do now is, is, is speak them and let whatever happens to me happen as I'm saying them, as I'm recalling it. If I just believe it and speak it, then it'll come out right. I know that you're working on a budget level with this, but are you the type mm. of actor in general who wants to do more takes even when you think you've nailed it? Or are you like, now nah, we've got it, let's move on? Uh, no, I'm now nah, we've got it, let's move on. I'm, if you're happy, I'm happy. Like, I don't know. I don't, I don't really have like a huge amount of self-awareness of like whether... I think I could always do more if someone was like, let's do more. I've been, I've worked with those directors um, who were like, you know, let's do more. This is fun. Let's do more. Give me more options. And I enjoy doing that. But if I think if, you know, a director has a clear sense that they've got exactly what they want, then I'm like, okay, fine. I don't need to do any more. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's fine. Yeah, I get that. Um, it's interesting. As I was prepping for this chat, I was looking through Twitter and there was one tweet I saw, which had, a few pictures of you in different roles. I think Christine, the Nighthouse, Resurrection, and the cut and the, the the tweet was like, should we send Rebecca Hall a fruit basket or something? Because these are, <laughs> these are traumatic roles. So what's the What's the difference between because I'm I'm guessing you get offered a few of them because you're so good at them. What's the difference between the traumatic role that you pass on and one that earns your interest? That's a good question. Um, I think that has to be a quality of, um, there has to be a sort of humanity to the role. You know, there has to be some depth to the role because there are plenty of roles out there that I've been offered that are um, a little bit almost exploitative of, 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 of being a victim to some sort of, trauma or, or tragedy and you know they don't really go much further than that so like you'll be you'll be going through horror or trauma or whatever it is and it, it the part never really explores like the other side of that like what does it do to you like what how do you change as a person like good sides and bads you know and I think the characters that I tend to gravitate to in this sort of world are the ones that exhibit more than just being frightened you know or, or disturbed they exhibit like they have they have in a sense changed or hardened or shifted because of the events or psychologies that are inside them and they behave in ways that are at times confusing and um sort of contradictory and unexpected and that that to me is human like I don't so I suppose I, I have to believe that these people are, are people <laughs> yeah. and be intrigued by them yeah. 
Absolutely. Um, just looking at your recent filmography, it's a nice mix of indies and blockbusters, which I love. Mm-hmm. What excites you most about returning to the world of Godzilla and Kong? I think you're you're filming yeah. now. Um, and just is there any- okay? Yes, right. <laughs> and is there is there anything else on your bucket list that you want to do in the near future, aside from more directing, I presume? doing those I really do I love doing those I was I was so happy to get the call it was such a sort of you know uh it was such a sort of pivot for me in terms of like I have spent a couple years doing tiny indies that are very that do rest very heavily on my shoulders (laughs) (laughs) and it was nice I mean those movies are tremendous fun because the, the heavy lifting is really on the giant uh CGI monsters and I get to have fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, like, I, I I love them. And I think those movies are fundamentally fun and entertaining. And I I I'm a big believer in that. Like I love movies, all types of movies. I'm not mm. kind of, you know, exclusive <laughs> to one <laughs> genre. I think that, that we, we there's a place and a need for all these kinds of things. So that is a very fulfilling kind of thing for me to do. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah, I'd love to do more of that. I, I always want to do more of that, but I also want to do more of. Um, I don't know. I'd like to do a comedy too. Actually, is the truth. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I thought this. Nice. Let's give it back a whole something light and fun yeah. and romantic yeah. to to counteract all yeah. the, the the heavy exactly. traumatic stuff. I've done like tons it. of light and fun and romantic stuff as well, actually. But people yeah. have tended to forget that in the last couple of years. It's like you know <laughs> that sort of early part of my career has completely disappeared. No, you were just this person <laughs> goes through hell. <laughs> like I'm kind of done with doing that for a second. I think <laughs> I like that. I like that. Uh, I wanted to uh, touch on your directing work a little bit before mm. uh, my time is up because I love passing. Um, Thank you. What did directing teach you about acting, first of all? And then mm. thinking about all the films that you've been a part of, if you had the chance to direct one of them, which one would you pick and why? Oh, that's a fun question. I'd really offend the director by saying the answer. That. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, even more reason for you to say it. <laughs> no, 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 I can't do that now. Especially since you know my motivation. Right? <laughs> um, yeah. I, uh, what was the first part of the question again? Oh, I've got. What did directing oh. teach you about yes. acting? And did you apply any of those lessons here? I mean, I. I... <sighs> I think the honest answer is I've always acted a little bit like a director and I think I directed a little bit like an actor and I don't really I don't really see the line quite so much Mm. you know it is a collaborative process you know there's a there's a lot of people involved to, to, to make something like this and I think that you know as an actor I was always thinking about the bigger picture like how does this how does what I'm doing going to slot in tonally with what the vision is for the whole you know what does and you know you do rely on the director a lot because you're like tell me what's in your head tell me what you imagine this to be like and I will try and make it work for that vision I can't make it work for my vision I'm not directing it so when it was directing then I was like I was doing the thing that I was kind of trying to do on behalf of someone else for myself (laughs) (laughs) and just like it was so there was a sort of there was a, a lot of similarities I think that more than I expected, actually. And I'm also, you know, I've I've never, um, I know this is a kind of insane thing to say, but I've never really thought of myself as an actor. Mm. Um, I know I am an actor <laughs> and I know that <laughs> I'm done. I'm not being completely insane here, but, you know, I've 
also always been a writer and I've also always been a painter and I've also always thought music is a huge part of my life so I mean there are all these sort of like components that sort of make up what I do I don't like to I don't kind of silo them off separately from each other I think they're all part of the whole mm-hmm. um but I I do think well I do think for a start that like filmmaking and being a director is the first time that I felt I was using all of those interests mm. but, which was which was different and I will say also that I think over the years acting um it lost a little luster for me somewhere along the line and I got very blasé about it like I got very um, like, oh, this is easy for me. What's the what's the issue? Why is everyone giving this so much weight, so much importance? This is like nothing. This is dumb. And and when I s- stepped behind the camera and went to work every day and watched Ruth Negger and Tessa Thompson, like literally take a layer of skin off and give me everything. <laughs> Like, and everything all the time and make themselves so permanently vulnerable. I found myself being completely in awe of them, like completely. And I had a newfound respect for acting after that. I was like, actually, it takes some guts to do that. (laughs) You know, and it takes a certain kind of crazy that is very beautiful (laughs) that I respect and I love. And I, and I, it was like, it was a bit of a revelation there because I think I'd got a little, I'd got a little, um, funny about it somewhere along the line well I one I'm very happy to see you back in front of the camera although I'm looking forward to seeing you back behind the camera when do you think that that might happen um I might be pretty soon I mean that's like you know I've got I've got some things that I've written so I'm just trying to pull together money and do that and blah 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 blah, blah. so you know mm-hmm. I'm hoping soon okay fingers crossed uh, Rebecca Hall thank you so much for your time it's been a pleasure look out for <laughs> my invoice and fruit basket coming to you very soon Great. As long as it comes to the fruit basket, no problem. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. It's Christmas! We decided that you could have one gift. Early. What is it? That is a direct hotline of Santa Claus himself. I can talk to Santa. All right, revelers. Welcome to your worst Christmas ever. Let's go! You have $300 million in your personal vault. That's what I want for Christmas. (laughs) I don't want any trouble, okay? Something's gonna scooch up that chimney. Violent night, harbor night. He will give mercenaries a fright. It's violent night. Uh, so <laughs> All is not calm. <laughs> All is not bright. Not in this film. My goodness, we'll get into it. Uh, violent night, an elite team of mercenaries breaks into a family compound on Christmas Eve, taking everyone hostage inside. However, they are not prepared for a surprise combatant. Santa Claus is on the ground and he's about to show why this Nick is no saint. This is directed by Tommy Wakola and written by Pat Casey and Josh Miller. It stars David Harbour, John Leguizamo, Alex Hassel, Alexis Lauder, Edie Patterson, Cam Gigande, Leah Brady and Beverly D'Angelo. So, uh, there's been a number of Christmas movies. There's always going to be 
Christmas movies around this time. This one aims to differentiate itself from the pack by having Santa be an action hero. We should also mention that this is produced by 8711 Productions. They do all the John Wick movies. So let's start off with the action in this movie, of which there is an abundance of action. Um, Did that work for you when this movie went into action mode? Hannah Flint, let's start with you. I mean, it made me chuckle all the way through. It was so gory. <laughs> it, was it was very like, gory. It, it, they, I really appreciate how uh, they did not pull their punches on it. And I suppose that's what you kind of want with this movie, right? <clears throat> you want to have just like gnarly fight scenes and just very, like, there's a lot of sharp objects, <laughs> and a lot of impaling. Yeah. yeah. I, I, was, I, was, I went to the cinema and I was only like, four of us in the cinema to see this. And it was just me and this guy behind me just cackling all the way through, like, <laughs> wincing. It was, it was just, like, it was great. And, uh, yeah, and it's, it's interesting. David Harbour, like, um, what I really like about David Harbour, well, it's pre, I suppose, pre-latest season of Stranger Things because, obviously, it made sense for him to, like, lose weight. But I like mm-hmm. the fact that he's, like, a chunky guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he just looks like he could actually, like, knock someone out. Yeah. <laughs> so it was mm-hmm. believable. It's interesting. You saw it in a cinema regular screening um, with four people. I went to the multimedia screening with a gang of critics. We were all having fun. There's a couple of really gory kills. The final kill, which I'm not going to get into any details on, it it inspired cheers and laughs and all the rest of it. It was really, really fun. Clarice, I believe you saw this in the week of release screening, which is typically stuffy sort of critics who don't no, really react to everything media. you saw me there yeah i did <laughs> you literally had a conversation <laughs> see that just goes to say that i got so much other stuff i got i mean i got a bad memory at the best of times right now it's just as horrible but but yeah i mean look, well, we'll speak to that then Chris. you were in the multimedia with me as i definitely absolutely 100 percent know um <laughs> The it was, it was a it was a cool vibe, right? Everyone was really having fun, um, and again, some of the guilt, some of the kills inspired some some really sort of great reactions. Yeah, because I I mean I have to confess, like a lot of the Christmas movies that I like watching are the sort of schlocky horrors, <laughs> like <laughs> Black Christmas, Silent Night, Deadly Night. I even like a little bit of Gremlins, mm. and this Krampus? was quite Gremlins ish. Uh, <laughs> I will say, like, in comparison to that legacy of, like, <laughs> Christmas Christmas violence, I kind of think Violent Night is actually, you know, kind of a little bit tame in compared to to what it's trying to be like. But I think that was because it's more, you know, it's more mainstream and it's more, it's for a bigger, wider audience. And I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of, Kills that are carefully concealed by darkness. Yeah. <laughs> Quite tasteful. <laughs> uh, but I really enjoyed it. It was so much mm. fun. And I think, yeah, Christmas... Christmas, because Christmas is, like, such a a high contrast of emotions because it's very stressful and magical. And I think what's great about these sorts of movies is that it captures the full breadth of that because it's, like, the violence, but also the little girl is so sweet, uh, mm. played by Leia Brady. Brady. Uh, yeah. she feels like she's out of 30, uh, Miracle on 34th Street. She's adorable. <laughs> yeah, she's adorable. I only have one issue with the action before we get on to the uh, Leah Brady uh, of it all. There you go. Uh, <laughs> had to put at least one there. Um, when you have a machine gun and you're a bad guy, what you need to do 
is fire bullets from that machine gun. Not attempt to run up to the guy you're attempting to gun down and melee him with the machine gun. And there's a couple of instances, more than a couple of instances, where it felt like that happened and I was noticing it actively as I was watching it. And I'm like, dude, what are you doing? Uh, so that was a little bit frustrating at times and decreased my enjoyment of various action scenes. Uh, but only a little bit because on the whole, I did enjoy it. Is that not how you use your machine gun? <laughs> <laughs> no, it is not. But the Leah Brady Santa connection is really, really sweet. And for me, it reminded me of David Harbour and Stranger Things because of how protective he was of those kids in that show. And they bring that into uh, the dynamic here in a really cool way. Yeah. I, I actually think that they're the only decent characters in it that oh, I really enjoyed. Yes. Because I think, you know, as much as I had fun with this movie, it's kind of like ridiculous that we're supposed to empathise with a super rich yes. family who seem to, like, don't get any consequences for, like, yes. <laughs> being just awful. Mm-hmm. And I felt like that was kind of weird. Also, it was so... I was looking at, I was looking at the dad, I was like... Who is that guy? I'm like, oh, he was in Macbeth. <laughs> He's like the guy, you know, the one in, I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, it was like, um, yeah, those characters. I mean, there was a few laughs and Cam Gigante playing like the actor was quite funny. But it just didn't hold up the rest of it. So in a way, you're kind of relying with so much on that like Santa little kid relationship to kind of keep keep it going. Otherwise, they're all just, I just don't really care about them. And I just feel like, I don't know, it, was, it felt like, well, I mean, die. <laughs> yeah. Why are we saving them? Just save the kid. <laughs> yeah. Grace, what, what, what were your thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I guess I, I didn't mind it too much because the overarching tone of the film is very cynical. So I, I don't think it's it's like justifying those characters. It's kind of everyone's a bit of a shithead in this movie, apart from the little girl. <laughs> So it sort of works on on that level. I thought uh, Edie Patterson, who's playing like the the really kiss ass sister, <laughs> trying to get all the money uh, from her mom, was really funny. Uh, but yeah, it's not. It like <laughs> it ranks pretty low on the eat the rich canon from this year <laughs> in terms of social messaging. But I thought it was fun. And David Harbour, I love him. Before we move on, we've got to talk a little bit about the mercenaries led by John Leguizamo, uh, who is giving you all the Christmas puns and then some. Um, at times for me, it's trying to get a little bit too hard for the Christmas puns, but when they land, they are quite funny. Uh, what did you think of his performance in particular and his band of not-so-merry men? I don't think it was his best work. I kind mm. of felt like he phoned it in a bit, to be honest. Um, he wasn't nearly as menacing or as nasty or as, like, as we've seen him in other things. Do you know what I mean? Like, I I don't know. I feel like he was just there for the paycheck. (laughs) Snow said the sloth. (laughs) (laughs) His greatest work. (laughs) It blows my mind that he was both said the sloth and also Tibble in Romeo and Juliet. (laughs) That's what you call range right there. I know. He's very talented. I love him. (laughs) And he's Bruno. We don't talk about Bruno. He is also Bruno. He is also Bruno. Can I also point out something that doesn't didn't hold up? Like you got annoyed about that, um, the machine guns. 
there's a bit in it where they're trying to find a phone to call the police and it's like do mobile phones not exist mm. when there's a scene where it's like he doesn't even look for a mobile phone and you're like Santa I'm pretty sure someone's asking for a cell phone yeah. <laughs> it just seems like one of those things where it's like that was it was like a plot like a plot hole mm-hmm. in a thing it's like yeah. oh wait that doesn't hold up same with your machine gun things yeah. maybe but he hey, doesn't know how to know. use it because he, he sent <laughs> no. out because the oh. if we know the presents just come out of the magic bag so maybe he's mm. vaguely yeah aware but he knows how to use a walkie-talkie and he knows how to use it like a yeah, because like, how's he got to talk to the elves he's got to have a walkie-talkie <laughs> for communication purposes but uh-huh. <laughs> see i don't yeah. <laughs> It's clear to me that Clarice believes that Santa exists, and I'm not going to burst that bubble, uh, so that's fine. Um, I want to believe that this Santa exists. (laughs) Berserker Santa. And on that note, it's time for our screen, stream, or skip recommendations on Violent Night. Hannah. Uh, Screen. I thought I had loads of fun. (laughs) Clarice. Yeah, hot murder Santa. I'm down. Screen. Let's go. <laughs> oh my god, when he had his bun out, when he had his hair up on a bun, oh his like, hair was falling down. I was like, oh, sexy Santa. When he kept being like, <laughs> that's a baby. He was murdering one of the mysteries, being like, you've been naughty, you've been naughty. And I'm like, yeah. oh, Santa. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> this has unlocked something. Shockingly, I did not share these feelings as I was watching Violent Night. Uh, you and sorry, uh, you can't appreciate a good David Harbour. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate a good David Harbour once. I just wasn't maybe reacting to it in the way that you girls clearly were, but that's fine. I think on on the if we're talking strictly about the quality of the movie, it's a stream. But knowing how much fun I had watching it, where the crowd was really up for it, if you do find uh, that environment, then absolutely screen for this film you will have some fun from a white christmas to white noise here is white noise trailer time okay roll film Stuff causes cancer in laboratory animals, in case you didn't know. Either I chew gum or I smoke. What are these children, yours? That's mine from Wives 1 and 3. There's Babette's from Husband 2. Wilder is ours. We're each other's fourth. Life is good, Jack. I hope it lasts forever. Let's watch a sitcom or something. No! No, that's not your white noise app to sleep to. It's me. <laughs> <laughs> white noise dramatizes a contemporary American family's attempts to deal with the mundane conflicts of everyday life while grappling with the universal mysteries of love, death, and a possibility of, unha- of a happiness in an uncertain world as a toxic event threatens their very existence. Written and directed by Noah Bombach, based on a novel by Don DeLillo, it stars Adam Driver, Greta Gerwig, Rafi Cassidy, Andre Benjamin, Jodie Turner-Smith, and Don Cheadle. 
Um, okay, so uh, I suppose in the canon of Bombback, uh, Clarice, how does this uh, sit? Does it feel like one of his movies? It feels it felt a bit uh, different than what I'm used to. Yes and no, I would say, because I think this is a very sincere, and I've just started reading White Noise. I'd never read it before. I'm not a, a super amount in, <laughs> but from what, what I've read so far, I feel that this feels like a very sincere attempt to adapt um, Don DeLillo's voice on onto screen, and so I think the yeah, like the beats of the dialogue and the ways that certain scenes flow, and I think maybe also just the the narrative itself, because Baumbach doesn't tend to do particularly surreal stuff uh is different but at the same time i think inevitably what the movie is about is very noah Baumbach. So i think he's always making movies about like people trying to find happiness in the chaos uh just usually it's about you know millennials in new york <laughs> and this is about people in like the midwest during a sort of apocalypse situation <laughs> yeah i don't know it felt a bit fargoy in the sense of these like heightened characters amon what did you think about uh the core family and the, i suppose also the university professors because there's a lot of time spent in lectures mm-hmm. um certain scenes where it felt like oh wow this is a this is a monologue <laughs> <laughs> yeah now there's some really good individual scenes on that front even Don Cheadle's introductory monologue to open the film I thought that was great um along with some really cool editing of car crashes uh which the film then goes on to emulate to sort of set the entire plot in motion uh, which I thought was cool it took me a while to get used to the rhythms of how people speak in this film in the early going, because it's very staccato, it's very, everyone's talking over one another. It took me a while to get used to the rhythm of the film. Um, And once I did, it got a little bit better. But for me, I think my main issue with this is that the film is many, many things, and it doesn't really amount to a satisfying cohesive whole because it goes from romantic drama to satire of academic stuff to disaster epic to thriller to musical at the end the, I mean, the, the end credit sequence is fine i won't say that but it's a lot and i'm not sure it quite hangs together um again in the, in the way that really satisfied me at least yeah i have to agree it felt um, it felt jagged in a way, and and also I suppose I found it quite difficult. I found it just found myself getting a little bit bored. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, me too. As it went on, um, and I, I don't. I think maybe it's also because I just didn't care for Adam Driver's character as a protagonist. I just was not invested in his journey, um, and I suppose. It's one of those, I felt like there's a lot of kind of floaty language and a lot of lines. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and it felt like, okay. And also, I don't know what, I don't know about you guys, but I know obviously this book, it wasn't written before, it was written before the pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it felt like so on the nose about things that I found it just a bit annoying. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's like, oh God, okay. Is this like a, 
I don't know. I, I mean, again, I haven't read the book, so Clarice, maybe you can. You you reading it now? Yeah, so I'm, I haven't gotten that far in, um, mm. but. I, I really love this. I think it, you're, you're both right. It's very, like, Don DeLillo has a very precise way of writing. And I think I really do admire Baumbach for kind of putting his own voice aside and saying, I'm going to try and capture this voice. And that voice is not going to be for everybody. But I, I don't know, I kind of enjoy that stilted, slightly stilted pattern of speaking. I mean, I love Yorgos Lanthimos, so, you know, I like when people don't kind of talk how they do normally. <laughs> no, I but think I think it's, 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 it's not that. I think it's more the, the dialogue, the actual words that they're saying, like the phrases they were saying. It just didn't feel, it felt, um, they felt like lines of dialogue rather than actual words that mm. would have come yeah. out of someone's mouth, right? So that's what I felt. It felt a bit um, artificial. I yeah, which I, and I know it's artifice, of course, but yeah. Um, yeah, which I think is why it's like it is definitely either you buy into it or you don't, because this is kind of a universe where people, I think, as well, are quite matter of fact about their own psyches. Like people seem to understand themselves quite well, because uh, there's that whole speech that Greta Gerwig gives that is so beautiful, <laughs> but it's very like, you know, it's like everyone in this movie I, is their own therapist because <laughs> yeah. they sort of just understand what's happening which just is not you know it doesn't happen in real life but that's what I liked about it and it felt like people I think the shifting of the tones is quite jarring but at the same time musical disaster movie romance it all links back to these very like american ideas of american cinema so it 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 worked, it did work for me i really i liked this a lot but it is weird i will give you that <laughs> it kind of reminded me a bit of like an inherent vice <laughs> you know where it's kind of like it's it's it i don't know big swing i suppose um supporting characters i mean i did like joni turner smith i kind of wish she was in there more yeah me too um, I really liked Don Cheadle's performance. I thought that was great. Um, I, I thought Danielle from the score was very versatile and nimble, as it has to be with a film that has so many different things going on. Um, but yeah, I I mean, I haven't read the book, and maybe Clarice will be able to speak to this better once you finish reading the book, but I have heard that this was deemed unfilmable. Um, and you know, I appreciate Noah Bumbach for being giving us a big swing but it's not my favorite of his that my favorite bomb back is still marriage story um and yeah i don't see myself re-watching this anytime soon the, i thought the kids were really good i mean rafi cassidy from that masterpiece known as fox lux <laughs> i love her <laughs> she's always great and the other kids are played by um alessandra nivola in emily mortimer's real life kids um they're really? really good. Yeah. Yeah, they're, but I... Oh, fuck, I don't remember their names, but their last names are Nivola. You're their godparent, right? <laughs> <laughs> you and your good friend, Alessandro. <laughs> yeah. <Nivola>. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he often tweets about showing tweets to his kids, and I'm like, I hope he's not showing my tweets to his kids. <laughs> <laughs> that is definitely happening. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> don't let anything get back to Noah. <laughs> Tell Noah Baumbach, I love him. I think, to be fair, I think if it wasn't the actors who were doing it, I probably would enjoy it less. 
Um, yeah. I definitely think Adam Driver once again proving himself to be like like gold star, high class, god tier acting acting. Um, yeah, I think it's just the character, the the set him as the central character was just, and uh, yeah, I don't know, I just didn't quite click. Just with him. got on my nerves. Yeah, I just got on my nerves a lot. Um, but okay, any anything else anyone wanted to add to white noise? I liked Greta Gerwig's wig. <laughs> good wig. She had a great, a great wig. wig. Great solid wig. wigs, solid wig work. Really good. And wig you know, work. if you watch, and Adam Driver has a wig guy. If you go back to my House of Gucci interview with him for MTV, he talks about his wig guy. Mm. So I wonder if you got this same wig guy on White Noise. We'll have to wait until the next time I interview him to find out. Okay, let's do this. So this is out in cinemas, but it's also coming to Netflix on December thirtieth. So it's a screen stream or skip, Clarice. Uh, screen, but like I love Noah Baumbach, so I might be biased in this. <laughs> Higher tolerance. Amon? <laughs> I'm going to say stream. I wasn't a huge fan of this, but not so much that I'm going to say dismiss it entirely. And I'm going to say skip. Uh, well, there it, you go. <laughs> n- not my cup of tea. Not my cup of tea at all. <laughs> okay. no, 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 hold on, hold on. You just interviewed Spike Lee. You can't say not my cup of tea like that. Do that again. Not my cup of tea. There you go. There you go. I mean, I did an impression of Spike Lee doing an impression of an English person. <laughs> okay. Right. So, uh, from uh, the apocalyptic world of No Bomba to the magical, mysterious world of Lynch slash Oz. I do see the story of The Wizard of Oz as the story of David Lynch himself becoming a filmmaker. David has gone over the rainbow from the very first film ever. He lives in a different reality than you or I do, and that's quite obvious. Why would Lynch be that absorbed with The Wizard of Oz? Did he watch The Wizard of Oz on a perfect day, at the perfect time as a child, and it sort of baked into his subconscious? Somewhere over the rainbow. Beautiful song. Beautiful song. Uh, Lynch. <laughs> That's it. That's all we're getting. That's all we're getting. <laughs> That's all. I like to leave the people wanting more. Uh, Do it as Judy Garland. all you guys could just continue to take over and i'll listen i'm happy with that um lynch forward slash oz focuses on the enduring influence of victor fleming's 1935 film the wizard of oz in david lynch's cinema as a collection of visual essays six critics and filmmakers give their perspective on the relationship between lynch and oz participants include karen kusama john waters and Amy Nicholson, and the result is six fresh perspectives, six new ways to consider how influence and inspiration affect the creative process. Lynch, Florida's Oz, was directed by Alexandra O'Philippe and edited by David Lawrence. I wanted to, I'm going to start with the editing of it all, actually, especially when it comes to a film like this, which is, as we just said, a collection of visual essays, um, because I think good editing can either keep the energy of that 
or if it's done not well, so the film sort of sinks a little bit. So how does the editing hold up considering it has all that to pack in? Uh, Chris, let's start with you. I I loved this because I thought the choices of clips were very smart um, because I like, there's sort of I don't really know the process of how they went about like writing the scripts for the narration because some of them kind of feel like the John Waters one feels like he's just talking. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't really feel like he wrote himself an essay. It just feels like he's chatting, and obviously he's fascinating because it's fucking John Waters. Um, but then you know through the editing process, there's a really like careful approach to mixing kind of parallels between both Wizard of Oz and, you know, scenes in Lynch's work, but also in, like, other films across the entire breadth of cinema history. And it does a really beautiful job of just constantly contextualizing everything to say that, like... And I think this comes out a lot in what the directors are talking about specifically, that the relationship that Lynch has with Wizard of Oz... Is, is representative of something so much more. It's like it's really representative of how cinema is constantly feeding into itself and, and all directors are just sort of like a compilation of their influences. Uh, so I thought, I thought it was fantastic. And also I love that they used really random clips. I forgot that he did the ice bucket challenge. Because <laughs> I found, I the other day I found my own ice bucket challenge video and I was like, why the fuck did I do that? And then... <laughs> I was like, oh, probably because David Lynch did it and because I want to be like him. <laughs> so I probably <laughs> copied him. Um, but yeah, I thought that was really funny. And they showed him with his Woody Woodpeckers, which is my favorite thing <laughs> on the planet. <laughs> I, I will say, though, I think the difficulty is is uh, is that some of the clips could felt um, repetitive. So they would, you know, if, if each individual director or critic is talking about, you know, same scenes or same moments, sometimes you, I found sometimes I was re-watching the same clip from Wizard of Oz or re-watching the same scene from one of Lynch's movies. So specifically the one from Mulholland Drive where the guy's at the cashier counter, the guy, the guy who's, um, oh, what's the oh, character's the Winky's Diner scene. With yeah, the, yeah, the diner yeah. scene. And that was kind of, so sometimes it felt a little bit repetitive. And I suppose that the nature of, you're kind of going on what the author, the author of the video essay is going going with, but the, mm. those moments, I think, um, yeah, I think it, it edited well, but again, sometimes repeating the same images did get a little boring at moments. Okay. I will say, I think this would have been better if they'd been individually released as episodes. I think that would have yeah, been really nice if this was like a mini TV series. I get it's not really the director's style, but you are right that because uh, they're always kind of circling around the same ideas in different ways. And if they'd been a way to kind of lop everything off, so it didn't, you didn't have to watch all of them. You can kind of mm. dip in and out as you wanted. Mm. It's interesting what you guys are saying about the selection of clips. What about the selection of talking heads? Because I recognize a few of the names here. Uh, Kusama, John Waters, Amy Nicholson, really great critic. Uh, what did they add to this film? And what are their perspectives like to you? find them intriguing do you find them interesting or boring no they're really good i mean i know their stuff right and Mm -hmm. um it's also interesting when you have like john waters who is kind of his history of lynch also kind of similar uh affection for wizard of oz i mean one of the things i really what i really enjoyed was you know as someone who loves 
I love to learn about cinema as much as writing about it. It was really interesting to notice the the references and the nods to Wizard and learn about um, certain things that I probably didn't, I might not have got or, or not have recognised, you know. And I think Karen Kasama's uh, video essay was really, really well done. Um, I love Karen Kasama because obviously Jennifer's body. Um, and what has she actually done recently? She did um, Destroyer. Um, she did Girl Fight as well um so it was really interesting hearing her especially you know the the kind of personal anecdotes as well they offered she served david lynch once oh wow um, yeah <laughs> and i love yeah. this is that every description i read as someone who's met david lynch it always makes a point of talking about how handsome he is yeah he is <laughs> he was super hot when he was younger he's got great hair still is though still is <laughs> uh is there anything else about the film that you would like to say. <laughs> I am obsessed with David Lynch, and so I know a lot about the Oz connections already. Uh, so I feel like the kind of the bits of the video essays where they were linking things, I was like, okay, I feel like I kind of already know this. Mm. But yeah, as, as Hannah said, what I found most interesting was like, like David Lowry's in it. He has one of the visual essays and Ooh. he's talking about his own films. He's talking about like Pete's Dragon, which I love Pete's Dragon. <laughs> mm. And and talking about kind of the lessons of what he's learned through both Wizard of Oz and Lynch's work, like how he actually brings them to his own work. Um, it's interesting. He's talking a lot about Peter Pan because he's making that Peter Pan movie, isn't he? So it's like, I could tell that he's, that's the mental space that he's in right now. <laughs> <laughs> he's clearly writing that Peter Pan movie, that Disney Wendy and Peter or whatever mm-hmm. it's going to be called. So he was clearly like trying to work out what his screenplay was going to be <laughs> through <laughs> thinking about David Lynch and Wizard of Oz. So I'm very excited now to, now to see what that movie's going to be like and if there are going to be any Lynch influences influences in it i feel like no but it'd be cool if there was i'm not a lynchian scholar like clarice's so definitely i think for me um he's kind of dipped in and out of his work you know things i didn't even notice about like like the curtain the frequent use of the curtain use and how that links back to the behind the curtain the wizard of oz pulling it back and how frequently he uses it um with people singing in front of the curtain as well there's so many little bits even with John Waters like seeing how Divine and his characters um were also ripping off like the Wicked Witch you know I thought it was all these little things that I was like oh that's that's actually so cool that's so interesting to know I really felt like I learned a lot from it um it felt like one of those things where it's both I don't know educational but also entertaining and also kind of makes you want to go back and watch all these movies (laughs) Mm. okay Okay, uh, I am sufficiently intrigued by your words on Lynch slash Oz. And now it's time for our screen stream or skip recommendations. Clarice? Um, I would say screen if you like David Lynch. And, but you, mm. you are going to want to watch Twin Peaks The Return again afterwards because <laughs> I <laughs> was so desperate to rewatch it after that movie ended, but I don't have time and it's really tragic. <laughs> Hannah? Uh, I'll say stream because uh, uh, I think it's, you know, it's, it's fun to watch at home and uh, I, uh, yeah. 
I think it's great. Also, I didn't realise how often Laura Dern worked with David Lynch. I was like, oh, wow, she's been a lot of his, <laughs> yes. lot of his films, right? I didn't realise yeah. that. Again, it's like great. It's like, oh, wow, I need to, I need to go back yeah. and watch some more of these movies. They're besties. <laughs> yeah. They're very yeah. good. Well, he did do that thing, didn't he? He did that thing where he sat outside and sign, vote for Laura Dern for Emmy. Like, how? Right? Oh, I love him. <laughs> <laughs> This is interesting. Hannah's gone for the whole spectrum so far. Do one screen, one stream, one skip. Clarice is like screen everything to spend the entire weekend in the cinema. Uh, it's interesting. I wonder where we're going to fall on our next and final film of this episode. Your Christmas or mine. Trailer time. I love you, James Hughes. I love you, Haley Taylor. Come with me. I wish I could come with you. Bloody Macclesfield. Bloody Kimball. Bye. 18, 20. Have you got your tickets? Somebody knows you well, eh? Oh, you're going to spend Christmas together. Wait, stop this train. And this stops at Kimball, right? Does it stop at Macclesfield? It does, love. I'm looking for the Hughes household. Up the hills. Can't miss it. I'm looking for Woodfield Road. Surprise! Mary! Who the bloody hell are you? Is Hayley here? Hello, honey. Late. Come in, girl. Let all the good heat out. What are you doing in my house? What are you doing in my house? Unbelievable. They do not know about you yet. Oh, God. I'm training home for Christmas. Okay, uh, okay. So, um, I haven't seen this film, uh, so I'm just going to tee up for my lovely, lovely co-hosts. So, synopsis of this movie. It follows a young couple, James and Haley, who, after a disastrous mix-up, end up having to experience each other's family Christmas without their partners. Directed by Jim O'Hanlon, with a screenplay by Tom Parry, it stars Asa Butterfield, Cora Kirk, Alex Jennings, Harriet Walter... Daniel Mays, David Bradley, Angela Griffin, Natalie Gamede, Lucian Laviscon, and Ram John Holder. So uh, this is in the tra- in the romantic comedy tradition of Christmas in that subgenre. Um, so Mon, did we get behind this romantic mishap? Eventually, yes. Um, they are very cute and very sweet together. Not that we see that much of it before the plot kicks into gear. Um, and there are a couple of cliched developments, which I saw coming from five million miles away. Um, but in the end, ultimately, uh, it did work for me. Uh, they are charming. They obviously have a number of phone calls throughout the um, film. And again, you can see exactly where the plot pieces are going to move and how they're going to move and when they're going to move but it didn't detract from the enjoyment of the film as much as it could have. So, Clarice, you, you, Iman, you just mentioned a few cliches. I mean, the setup of a working-class Northern family, <laughs> like <laughs> a wealthy, middle upper-middle-class, I don't know, Southern family, and then, you know, mm-hmm. fish out of water on each side. Did that work? Did it, was it a bit... Did it great... Did it play into stereotypes? No, it it didn't feel like it was stereotyped. 
but I don't know if it really, like, <laughs> it said anything, you know? It wasn't really saying anything about anything. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just like, oh, oh, these, oh, these posh people, um, they're, they're in the countryside, so, like, a man has a gun. Um, there is a dog injury in this movie that I found mm-hmm. quite upsetting. I don't know why that was included, but a dog gets, like, hideously injured for no reason (laughs) it's really fucked up um but yeah it's more about i feel like the it's very observational comedy as opposed to having any kind of sincere uh impulse behind it i guess Mm-hmm. And I suppose as uh, Mon, as the leads, Asa and Cora, Cora Kirk, I haven't seen her in anything. Me neither. Before uh, chemistry, did it work? I mean, they're not. Like, wait, so they spend most of it apart. I, I assume. Well, yeah, yeah, they do. This is why, like, you know, I I get why it had to happen the way it did, but it would have been nice if we could somehow see a little bit more of their time together. Uh, in the early going before the plot kicks into high gear. Um, but yeah, when they have their scenes together, there are moments between them that make it believable that they would get together in the first place. Um, and that is down to definitely some solid acting between the two of them. So, so yeah, it was good. Do you concur, Clarice? Yeah, I think the thing that sold this movie to me it was the acting i think the entire cast are great um and especially the two of them but there's this is like one of those christmas movies where it's i guess it's not really a spoiler to say everybody's got a secret and then they have to resolve their mm. secrets <laughs> and have mm-hmm. like one of those christmas movies where there's like tension and then they have one scene where they talk about like the sad thing that happened to them and then everything mm-hmm. is fine after yep. and it's just so <laughs> unrealistic it's mm-hmm. so unrealistic but it's also so expected in this kind of genre that i feel like i can't really like knock it too much because that's yeah. how christmas movies work you, you come mm. in with lots of like baggage and then you talk about it for five minutes and then mm-hmm. everything in your life is solved and fuck therapists we don't need them <laughs> we just need <laughs> to talk for five minutes yeah. uh yeah. but yeah. yeah and the secrets that they're hiding from each other i thought were a little bit extreme to the point that i was like i don't i think if two people were lying to each other to that extent maybe no not a good relationship even though they had the chemistry, I was a bit like, that seems like a really poor way to start. I'm giving red, it's red flags for both of them. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. That's very true. It's interesting um, to talk about this film in relation to another Christmas film I just watched this week, The Noel Diary, which does... I thought you were going to say Violet Night. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the Noel Diary, which is, again, the backbone of it is the relationship between these two people who find each other. Um, and in the end, that film ultimately sort of, you know, subscribes to convention and does like big romantic gestures and all of it. But for the vast majority of that film, it's played organically and naturally in terms of how the relationship develops and how that chemistry develops. And I feel like this film could have stood to have a little bit more of that style of filmmaking. That being said, you talked about the acting before. 
I think we have to give a special shout out to Daniel Mays, who I thought was really, really good in this film, funny. And then when he has the one emotional speak of which Clarice speaks of, he nails it. Uh, so yeah, it's good. So this is a stream or skip scenario. Uh, Amon, Bear Christmas or none? Bear <laughs> uh, Christmas. I'm going to say stream. It's a fun, it's a fun time. Clarice? I'm, I'm going to say stream because I think it's very a Christmas movie, mm-hmm. <laughs> but usually, you know, the the quality of those can vary dramatically. And I feel like this is definitely on the upper end of Christmas movies. <laughs> <laughs> so stream. stream. There we go. There we have it. Well, that is the end of our review section. But guys, we have a bonus interview uh but before amon gets into it here is a trailer for descendant from birth my daddy he always wanted us to be able to talk to our people because you have this type of history your ancestors gonna always talk to you the way my mother told me timothy mayer a local businessman made a bit that after slavery was abolished that he could still bring africans into the country he went and brought them back here and burn the ship to conceal the crime. It's slowly been erased, and as far as I can remember, it's never been in history books. The Mayer family lied to lead people to the wrong area so they wouldn't find the ship. How should I say this? I don't want the momentum of the story to just be focused on the ship. It's not all about that ship. Descendants of the survivors from the Clotilda celebrate their heritage and take command of their legacy as the discovery of the remains of the last known slave ship to arrive in the United States offers them a tangible link to their ancestors. And this is a documentary directed by Margaret Brown, which has been on Netflix for a while now, since October. Uh, But the reason uh, that I got to interview Margaret Brown and Joycelyn Davis is that a couple of weeks ago, uh, they were in town along with producer Questlove, uh, and I uh, was doing a Q&A with them uh, at the Ritzy in Brixton, which was a lot of fun. And right before we were on stage together, I sat down with Margaret Brown and Joycelyn Davis to talk about the film. Uh, and it was a really interesting conversation. I loved what they had to say. If you have not yet watched Descendant, I highly recommend checking it out. It's one of the best documentaries of the year. Uh, and here to tell you a little bit more about why that's the case, this is my chat with Margaret Brown and Joycelyn Davis. Enjoy. Welcome to the Fade to Black podcast, Margaret Brown and Joycelyn Davis. How are you? Well, I'm well. Good stuff. I'm also well. <laughs> Good stuff. Uh, we're here to talk about Descendant. Uh, first and foremost, congratulations on the film. I thought it was fascinating. I thought it was beautiful. I thought it was all the things. It was great. Um, and I think you first screened this movie in January in Sundance. What has the last few months been like for you uh, being on this journey? And especially, I know it came out on Netflix in October, we're recording this in November. What's, what's been the journey like for you these last few months? Joyce, and start with you. It's been amazing. I mean, I've been hearing about this story all of my life. Mm. And we've been filming for four and a half years. And to see it come to fruition, it's, it's like right now I'm in London and I just want somebody to pinch me, <laughs> right? It's like... Let the really... reflect that Margaret just pinched Joyce. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
Right, but um, I'm glad that the story is reaching so many, mm. and that's what it. That's what we're hopeful for, that it reaches. And with it being on Netflix, it's reaching millions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you, Tato. I mean, we talked a long time ago just about all the things we hoped and dreamed for the movie, and a lot of them have come true. Like um, the the reach is the biggest we could have ever hoped, and. Um, you know, things are definitely not perfect in Africa Town yet, but um, you know, um, I wanted the movie to reflect both the hopefulness and like excellence of the community, but also there's a lot of work to be done. And yeah. so I think like the more people that can see the film, um, it just makes me happier and more grateful to be part of this. Mm-hmm. What was the reaction like from people who are actually in the film to the sentence themselves? I talk to Margaret almost every other day about the film, like, <laughs> you know, how did you guys decide to do that? You know, it's like every time I watch it, it's like my first time seeing it, mm-hmm. right? I take away so many different things and the way they capture everyone and the story is so broad. You have the environmental issues, you mm-hmm. have the oral history and, you know, the blight is there and it, it covers so much of all the needs that we have in Africa Town. So it's not so much focusing on the ship itself. Mm-hmm. It talks about everything. Mm-hmm. Now, I wanted to ask about that actually, Margaret, because Joycelyn is right in that this movie is an incredible juggling act. You've got so many different things that you touch. As a documentarian, as the filmmaker, how challenging was it to figure out to get how to get that balance right and not give too little of one thing and too much of another? Joycelyn knows Mike Block, who finished the film with me. Um, he's a character, right? Yes. <laughs> um, hi, Mike. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it was um, Jeff Richmond was the first editor and then Mike came on for like the last eight months and we really like polished the film and brought it to its full fruition. And we just never um, there were some pressures to sort of abandon some of the threads, but um I like really complicated stories and this is a really complicated story. Mm -hmm. So to do it justice, I felt like we had to maintain all the different complications and webs of things that affected Africa town. And alongside also just like seeing these leaders like come into themselves. Like, I mean, the film's journey really is like getting to watch Joycelyn and Vita and Emmett, like, come into their own power and like when you film something for four and a half years you get to witness that absolutely as a documentarian i was reading the quote from you and you say you you never know what you're gonna get uh when you wake up in the which is so interesting was there a day or moment when you started to breathe a little easier with the footage that you were collecting and seeing how the film was maybe coming together or was it only when you collected it all you were in the post-production phase that you started to see how all the puzzle pieces might fit I knew pretty early on it was an exceptional story. Like, um, I, I, cause like I was so inspired by the people I was filming, um, in Africa town and the, and the community and, and other descendants who don't live in Africa town. You know, I, I was like, these are people that have been passing down a story for 160 years. And the South is already known for being like the land of great storytellers. And I've always believed that, but this was ex- an exceptional group of storytellers. So when you, you know, when Joycelyn says in the film, it's not about that ship, I, I believe that, like, as well, because I was like, oh, my God, like, everyone in this community is so good at, like, they're all so magnetic, you know? And and so it was very, I kind of knew that, oh, my God, this is like, and the whole crew knew. We were always talking about the movie as we were making it. We were always like, we are witnessing 
a living history mm-hmm. and we we're witnessing something very special it's very palpable so yeah we we kind of know yeah yeah, yeah. What was the responsibility that you felt, Joycelyn, in bringing this story uh, to life the way, the way this film has? To tell my truth, mm. right? Because um, when people see Margaret, they feel like she's telling us what to say, and she didn't, mm. right? So it was important for me and others that were in the film to tell our truth, um, what we expect from Africatown, what we've been going through in Africatown, so that's that's the gist of that. Yeah, yeah. To that point, um, there's always a discussion in our sort of film community about uh, white filmmakers telling black stories. I'm firmly of the opinion that if the filmmaker does their research, then it can work well. And this is another example, I think, of that being proven right. But were you conscious of that? How conscious of how much was that in the, in the forefront of your mind? And I guess, how did you rise above that and put that out of your mind to do the work, if so? I mean, I love that question. I think people are kind of afraid to ask me, but like, I, I like the question because I think that like, um, you know, these are discussions we should be having. Um, I think that um, often the most uncomfortable places are the ones where the most growth happens. And I know for me, when I realized that some of the white people, like I made this other film 15 years ago in Mobile that was also like, it was almost like a, a prequel to this movie and it's now available on Netflix. It's called The Order of Myths. But Helen Mayer of the Mayer family who brought the last slave ship to the United States was the white Mardi Gras queen 15 years ago when I made this movie about racially segregated Mardi Gras in my hometown, Mobile, Alabama. So um, I kind of started on this journey 15 years ago and not earlier because I did not learn about this or don't remember learning about this. It wasn't dwelled upon in, 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 in my high, public high school in Alabama. Um, so um, in public means something different here. <laughs> it's the opposite. Um, so, uh, so yeah, like I, I think, um, I think we have to have these questions about authorship. And I think if I didn't have such close collaboration with, um, you know, um, one of my best friends, Essie Chambers, is also a producer on this, and she's African-American. And early on, we were just talking about it as friends and about, like, all the blind spots I had as a white filmmaker. And she, at a certain point, to my other producer, Kyle Martin, I was like, and he's, like, my long-term producer. He's white also. And... um. I said to him, I think we have to bring on Essie. Like, I think, you know, now that I know a lot of the white people aren't talking to me, I think I'm going to, I think if, I'm going to miss a lot. And, and I would have. Like, also Kern Jackson, who's the folklorist in the movie, like, he co-wrote the film with me. So there were, I, you know, and, and also just, I mean, you know, it goes without saying, but I'll just say it. Like, our crew was very diverse as well. And there's always conversations. And then also collaborating with the people in the movie, like, Joycelyn was saying, like, you know, I never told them what to say, which may or may not be obvious. But one thing that wouldn't be obvious is that, um, you know, I've never done this before this movie, but I showed um, I showed like Joycelyn and others in the movie scenes as I was making them. I mean, quite early on, I think, because I just wanted to make sure she knew what I was doing. And like, I don't want to misrepresent because it's not my story. Um, It's a story that I've been trusted to tell, but it's not my story. So, um, yeah, I just felt like I had to be like as as like vulnerable and collaborative pos- as possible or this wouldn't be good. Yeah. yeah, well, it is good. So you succeeded. Well, done. <laughs> um, I love the poster for this movie for many reasons, one of which is because of that caption. The past is always present, which I think 
is embodied in the film, not just through the fact that you got these storytellers, these descendants telling the film, but also you've got the book. Uh, I think uh, I've written it down here, Barracoon. Um, Joycelyn, how did it feel to say those words and bring those words to life? And also when you watch the film back, to not only see it back, but to see your fellow descendants also reading excerpts from that book. How did that feel? Talk to me about that experience. Well, when I first heard that the book was published, I was like, I have to get it. Mm -hmm. I have to, you know, get this, get Barracoon because I'm a direct descendant of a Lule, Charlie Lewis. Charlie was his enslaved name and Maggie Lewis. And I wanted to find something in, in Barracoon that has his name in or something he said or Kajo referenced him in some type of way. So when I read, oh, Charlie, he's he the oldest one that come, I was like, you know, I, I mean, I just felt something just then, mm -hmm. right? And when I did the book reading at the library, because in the South you have the broken English, and not all over you have broken English, yeah. and it was so easy for me to read. Some people, when they read, it's like, how do, what? <laughs> like, I know people who, who speak this way. So it was just, it was great. But then, you know, there were, there are other books that are written on Africatown slash Clotilda story. I had to plug that in. Dr. Natalie Robertson, Dr. Sylvia Ann Dulf, Ben Raines, um, Historic Sketches of the South. So I always, um, I always like to tell people about the other books that are written. There's also African Town by Charles Wallace and Irene Latham. So it was great. I, I Just saying something about Charlie, which was his enslaved name, just gave me, I had that feeling, that, that close connection to my ancestor. I love that. Um, the film does a really good job of making it clear that proof of the Clotilda is wanted, but it's not needed. Um, and I love that. And I know that you go on a journey throughout the course of this film. When you got that knowledge that the Clotilda had been found, what was the immediate aftermath for you? What, what, what were those next few hours like? So the Clotilda was uh, rediscovered. So mm. it's always been there. Mm. So it's not like, oh, because um, Captain Foster, you know, he kept great notes and the shit was documented. Our ancestors were documented. So I know that it was a myth, but all these, I mean, we had all these facts, yeah. but some people wanted that, that vessel. They, they wanted to know exactly. Mm -hmm. So you heard me say that I can care less about the ship, which I, mm -hmm. I, I can care less about the ship, but my ancestors who were aboard the Clotilda, people benefited off of them, right? Mm -hmm. Coming on the Clotilda. My my joy was the community is about to benefit off of Clotilda. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to make dollars off of Clotilda some type of way because if we can't get any reparations or whatever, we're going to benefit off of Clotilda the same way she benefited off of my ancestors. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Um, Margaret, you mentioned this took four and a half years to make. Um, if you could talk to that younger version of yourself now that you're at the end of this journey and give that person one piece of advice now that you're here, what would it be? Just keep believing, stick mm. with it. Cause um, 
it was it was difficult. It was definitely difficult when I realized like that none of the white people would talk to me and I was like making a film about the black experience. And I didn't feel equipped to do so like in, in a way that would be moral and just. So I had to figure that out. Mm -hmm. um, so just like trust, trust with my collaborators, just trust. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, final question for you, Joycelyn, actually for, for both of you. Um, what do you hope people take away from this film? There's that one quote which really stuck out to me, um, what do people do when they leave? Um, so what do you hope people do when they leave the experience of watching this film? Well, we don't, we, um, I don't want anyone to go in the same way. Mm. You leave out a different person, mm. have some type of purpose, have something, if you had a goal that you wanted to reach in life, like this, this film is inspiring, mm. right? We just don't want to say, oh, I, yeah, after seeing this film, I want to do this, go and do it. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, because sometimes we'll have this high of doing things and then we'll get back on the low. Mm -hmm. But, you know, with it being on Netflix, you can watch it several different times and you can that feeling can come back. Mm -hmm. But have some type of purpose. Yeah. And the, the story is about resilience, courage, and pride. Right? Mm -hmm. So if you're ever feeling... And, and continue to tell your story in your community because everybody... And every community has a story to tell. So mm -hmm. continue to keep telling your story because a girl from Alabama is in London right now. <laughs> yes, she is. Right? Hold on, hold on. pinch, pinch. <laughs> yep, yep. Confirmed, confirmed. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if I can say it better than that, but I would like to add a few things. I would like a pinch. But, um, but <laughs> that, that could reflect that Joyce has just pinched Margaret. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I think that um, there's a few things like one, when Anderson says, like, what do you do when you leave? I mean, for a long time, that was the end scene in the movie, because that's mm. really what I wanted people to walk away with. Like, you can watch a film and you can have this, like, deeply emotionally resonant experience and inspiration and, you know, want to help and want to do something in your community. But then I realized, like, I really wanted to end with the full circle with with a few, I, I thought there was actually a more inspiring way to end it. So I'm not going to give it away, but we changed it. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think I want people for two things, like just what Joycelyn was saying, do something. Do you want me to stop? I don't know. Do something in your own community and um, make that a better place because there's a lot of Africa towns. But also there's we we if you want to get involved in this story, um, the 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 studio that um that, that we made the film with is called Participant, and they are running an impact campaign to kind of augment the work that Joycelyn and others are already doing. So you can, you know, really talk to and get to know the people in the movie and, and work with them. And if you want to find out more about that, you can learn about all the organizations you just saw in the movie at descendantfilm.com. There's direct links to like all those organizations. So it's like direct action, it's democracy with a lowercase d. Love that. And what a fantastic note to end on. Uh, Margaret, Joycelyn, thank you so much for your time and congratulations on the film again. Thank you. Thank you. So guys, it's now time for our hot take. Hot take, hot take, hot take. Okay, so guys, this is gonna be like, very upsetting for all you listeners. I will not be having any hot takes. What? Because I have not done the reading. Uh, I, uh, so, uh, we, as we said at the top, uh, Brazil's CCXP convention took place and it meant that we got the first look at, well, Amon and Clarice got the first look of <laughs> Indiana Jones, 
the new Indiana Jones, the new Guardians of the Galaxy, the new Ant-Man and the Wasp, the new Transformers, and the original Cocaine Bear. Um, so, uh, God, lots of, lots of trailers <laughs> to indulge in. Uh, right. Clarice, Cocaine Bear, I feel like this is your, your bag. <laughs> Pun intended. <laughs> um, I, it looks great. I'm so excited for Cocaine Bear because it just seems so stupid. It feels like a snakes <laughs> on the plane situation, right? B movie sort of situation where it's like this is such a weird <laughs> concept, but it happened, right? It happened. Yeah. yeah. No, it was a real cocaine bear, and I. It is sad because the bear died. Um, but I'm hoping the movie. <laughs> it's not a spoiler if it happened. <laughs> yeah. And also, I. Hope I mean, movie... if you're eating a whole fucking bag of cocaine, I think everyone also, would die. <laughs> It's pretty obvious that the bear is not going to survive. Yeah, yeah. Several kilos of cocaine or whatever it ate. Um, but I'm hoping maybe the movie will give it like a redemption arc. <laughs> it will survive and become a drug lord. Oh, that would be a twist. Can I just say, I'm absolutely shocked at what has just transpired. We have, we have been talking about cocaine bear for about 30, 40 seconds. Clarice Lockley has yet to mention Alden Ehrenreich's name. This is unprecedented. This is unheard of. I cannot believe what's just happened. Because you were going to do that. <laughs> you put me on blast. But yes. I thought I'll the cocaine bear was that impressive in the trailer that you had to like top, had to have it at the top. It's like, yeah. Alden, but cocaine bear. But I was saying, delivery of the line, the bear, it fucking did cocaine. It's so good. <laughs> I want to already give him the Oscar for it. It's fantastic. Okay, Yeah. Let's go to you, Marble Corner. What are we saying? How's it going? How are our kids doing? <laughs> it's good. Well, you know, I say it's good. This trailer made me very worried for the fate of Rocket Raccoon, a character who I have grown to love. And it feels like they are setting him up uh, for potentially dying, which would be very emotional. Um, but... Bradley Cooper's contract has ended. <laughs> but <I'm> yeah, <laughs> this trailer was really, really good. Um, it did all the things that a Guardian trailer typically does, which is one, introduced me to a song that I'd never heard before, but it was really, really cool. James Gunn always does that with his trailers, and I do appreciate him for it. Two, it delivered on the humour. Uh, there's a really cool funny bit where Drax throws a ball at a kid and then <laughs> it comes right back into camera. Then I think something gets thrown at Quill and then it gets thrown at Drax, which was very funny. I enjoyed that. It gave you the feels, as I say, the emotion of it all. Um, not only... It's, it's so interesting. In addition to the Guardians of the Galaxy Holiday Special, which did some really cool things with Mantis, just this snippet of this trailer makes it feel to me how much closer the Guardians unit has become. I don't think I've ever heard Rocket call Quill Pete before, but the way he says it and the delivery of that line just underlines how close these guys have gotten uh, since then. Well, I think Thor Love and Thunder pretty much established that, where it was like, where Pete Quill does that speech and then he's like looking at his crew yeah. and then like Thor's doing the, 
Yeah. Sideways. <laughs> it's like trying yeah. to look past it. I wish this was like, a visual podcast. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, and then... <laughs> but you go sideways and hit my head. <laughs> <laughs> Let the record reflect that Hannah was drifting her head like Thor does and Thor yeah. haven't done that. And then finally... You know what I mean. They know. The listeners know. <laughs> and then finally, and most excitingly, it delivered the call because it slowly builds and builds and then Groot says, we are Groot. And then we get like a four second shot of Groot, Rocket and Quill firing all of the weapons at the same time. I would like to see that full sequence immediately because that looked extremely cool. So yeah, I'm I'm here for it. I have a question about who's the Otter. Is that Rocket's girlfriend? Who's that? I'm very I interested was... <laughs> in the Otter. <laughs> yeah. I assume it's someone else because I was watching the Guardians of the Galaxy animated series okay and i assume it's basically i i i mean i don't know does the otter talk (laughs) again i'm like they just hug but i thought maybe it was like a romantic interest for rocket so rocket is part of like a he was like tested on right and i think there was an episode where there's like loads of animals that were tested on and they became like sentient you know anthropomorphic um animals so i wonder if that's the case they're really gonna dig into rocket's story in in this film uh which yeah it's gonna be interesting we got a, a shot of um Oh, what's his face? Golden Adam dude. Adam Warlock. Will Thank Polter. Thank you. Yeah. yeah we, oh, we, Will Poulter. Yeah. Hey. It's Will, it's Will Poulter, but he's got like a diamond in his forehead. It's not really. <laughs> it just looks like Will Poulter. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that was interesting. And obviously the, the villain of this is uh, the high evolutionary played by Chukwudi Iwuji, uh, who was also in uh, Peacemaker fairly recently. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited for it. Uh, what about Kang? <laughs> Kang, will, Kang will be looming everywhere in Phase Five. I, 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 <laughs> I, I can predict Kang might show up in some form or fashion in pretty much every MCU film for the foreseeable. Yeah, man, is... I just want Kang to throw his dick about and like show these guys what's what. <laughs> Jonathan Majors, like, yeah. come through. Yeah, yeah. Kang no, honestly, means yeah. Business. I mean, well, well, that's a nice segue to Ant Man and the Wasp because they they give us a little trailer the, the most of the trailer was like ant-man's journey up until now um but the final sort of 30 seconds or so were fresh footage from ant-man and the wasp and it ends with kang telling scott lang you're out of your league which is one million percent correct and i love that for this film and for this franchise because it's nice to watch as the ant-man films are when it comes to states compared to other mcu films it's very very low down and part of that is the appeal of it i get it but to see Ant-Man and the Wasp and his family going up against somebody who was so far out of their league. And to be honest, out of everyone's league in terms of, not out of the vast majority of Heroes League in the MCU right now, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Don't underestimate my my second favourite Marvel franchise, solo franchise. I love the Ant-Man franchise so much, second to Thor. Actually, maybe I like Ant-Man more now. We'll see. Well, Quantum Mania will have to be the decider. Really, um, I love it. I love it. It's so like. What? So you prefer you prefer the Ant Man and Thor franchise over the Black Panther franchise? I said, "What's my favorite? Do I think one's better? Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> Greatest and favorite. Like, okay. I find it favorite because I like the sense of humor of it. Okay. Uh, I think it's funnier. Like Black Panther isn't it's funny, right? I, I think that's I, fair to say. I will accept that. You may stay. Great. We, <laughs> agreed. We've reached an impasse. 
So, Indy, can he run around at this point? Is he running? Well, well, that's like the interesting thing. One of the interesting things about this trailer, um, they are going to de-age Indy. I think the first 30 minutes of this film are going to be sort of in in the past with a de-aged Indy. And this is a small sample size, but it looks really good off of this trailer. I was very impressed uh, by that. Man, Um, Harrison Ford was super hot. Back in the day, so I'll happily take that CGI. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it looks really good. And you know, on the list of things guaranteed to put a smile on a on a modern woman's face, John Williams's Indiana Jones theme is very high up on that list. Um, it's just so brilliant. It's timeless, and it gets put to good effect here. And yeah, the the t- my excitement for this film is slowly rising. With this trailer and the latest issue of Empire Magazine, uh, which has Indiana Jones on the cover, it's a really good cover feature. You should all read it. Um, there's some really interesting. I feel like Indy's going to go out on a high, um, and that's really really cool. Uh, Hanson Ford's last indie film, John Williams's last time scoring Indiana Jones. There's a lot of lasts associated with this. Um, I uh, like the idea of Harrison Ford just like coming back as his classic character and then killing him off. No, <laughs> like, no, they're dead now. For don't, sure, that's going to happen. Don't kill off Indiana Jones. What is, what is wrong yeah. with you two? I mean, he has to what die. Everyone dies. Have you not watched White Noise? <laughs> <laughs> Have you not watched any Harrison Ford legacy sequel? Uh. He's coming in to kill everybody. Uh. <laughs> but then he might come back if fans demand it. <laughs> did, did fans really demand that? I, I know, but you was I mean the Rise of Skywalker was, was kind a bad of like movie. Bullshit, wasn't it? Anyway, um, right. Uh, Clarice, what's your thoughts? I you don't like your Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> Why am I being accused of things? What did you I swear that you give it a positive review when it came out? No. No. <laughs> How many stars did you give it? She didn't. Oh, like maybe two or three, but mm. It was like, no last like some yeah, some of the stuff it did well, but mm. it really flubbed the landing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Indiana Jones. Uh, I don't know. I'm. I, the trailer didn't really convince me of anything because I, I gotta be honest. Like the joy of Indiana Jones for me growing up was all the practical stunts and mm. like everything felt so grounded and him running away from the giant boulder. Um, this looked very CGI, uh, and like almost too big in scale. I think like Indiana Jones worked because you know it was always just him running away from something, <laughs> and this looked almost like a Bond movie. Like there's so many explosions going off and car chase and crazy mm. things where, um, there's like mass dest- leaving behind mass destruction in their wake. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I have to say, I am not. Ex- I I I feel nothing. <laughs> I love it. I love Um, Indiana Jones, but I just, after the Kingdom of the Crystal Skulls, it kind of made me realize, oh no, this was a product of its time that really worked. Really, at that time. And I feel like trying to apply like modern day kind of action to the Indiana Jones, I feel takes away the kind of, I don't know, the rugged, ragtag nature of it as a film. I don't know. Mm. Yeah, and also I don't really know why we need to have Salah back because it's just not good to have again like white guy playing an Egyptian character in twenty twenty. Oh, is that is he back? 
He's back, <laughs> unfortunately. Sake. He's like the um, opening scene. You're like, oh, for fuck's sake. Nice. Oh, God's sake. Uh, he was like, yeah. no one's like, oh my God, where the fuck is <laughs> You know, it's mm. like, no one's going to be mad if he's not in the movie. And I, th- I feel like it doesn't make me feel like Indiana Jones, this new Indiana Jones, I want it to be a reflection of now. Um, mm. Which is why I, I, it's difficult because Harrison Ford is so... Um, I think this is his most personal role, like the one that he treasures the most. So mm. I think he's very reluctant to like give that to somebody else. But I always thought if they were going to do more, they should reboot it, maybe with a different character to do like in mm. the world of Indiana Jones and get like mm. well, Oscar think- Isaac. Indiana it's- Jones Jr. <laughs> Jr. It's exactly because of what you say though, Clarice, that does make me excited about this film because... Harrison Ford feels so close to this character, he's not going to take the leap and say, yeah, I want to do another film, unless the people behind it and what he's reading script-wise are a certain level of quality. Um, King of Crystal Skull, notwithstanding. But, <laughs> and Rise so, of Skywalker. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, but, uh, and he, isn't he joining, what's he joining now? Is he not doing Fast and Furious? <laughs> no, he's joining the MCU. Oh, that's it. Oh, yeah, he's yeah. playing Ross. Yeah, Thunderbolt playing, Ross. Yeah, Thunderbolt Ross. Um, yeah. The pre- press tours for that are going to be hilarious. Um, I but- will hopefully I won't see him in a corridor. <laughs> Last time I walked in a corridor with him, he gave me such a death stare. I knew oh, really? it over. It really, really it seared on my brain. Um, right, okay. Do we care about Transformers? <laughs> yes. At this point? I do. Oh, okay. Is it a Bumblebee? Is it like the Bumblebee? Is it sequel to the Bumblebee version? It's, yeah, it's following on from Bumblebee. Which okay, was, I, I hope we can all agree, was genuinely very good. Yeah, it was um, great. It was like far better than most yeah, of the other yeah. sequels. So yeah, that that's one thing that has me excited about it. The second thing that has me excited about it is that this is, again, not directed by Michael Bay. It's directed by Stephen Capel Jr. The last film that he did was Creed Two, and I really had a good time with that film. I thought that was great. Um, so that's good. And then the third and most important element of this, and the reason why I'm excited really, Peter Cullen. Go on, Amon. <laughs> Peter Do Cullen it. is still voicing Optimus Prime, and it's Go still on. absolutely perfect. <laughs> Do it. You know you want to. I am Optimus Prime, and I send this message to any surviving Autobots taking refuge among the stars. We are here. We are waiting. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> Peter Connor's job oh, is safe. Goosebumps. Um, <laughs> goosebumps. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I think he's just so incredible. The gravitas um, is phenomenal. I watched this trailer on my new TV yesterday when Peter Cullen's voice came on. My new subwoofer, <laughs> it, it was put through its paces because the bass... The bass was there. Um, but yeah, um, I just, he, he is on my Mount Rushmore of voice acting along with the great and uh, recent departed Kevin Conroy. I put Mark Hamill on there and I'd put, probably put James L. Jones on there as well because Darth Vader and Mufasa, legendary. Um, but yeah, Peter Cullen is just perfect for that character. Anytime somebody else voices Optimus Prime, it just doesn't feel right. And it feels like they're doing a Peter Cullen impression because he was so definitive in that role um, that that is what the goal is whenever anybody voices up to his prime now. So it's it's fantastic. And i got to say, the final 15 seconds or so of this trailer where it's Autobots and Maximals, which are sort of like the um, 
beast mode variations of the good guys. They've got a gorilla, uh, uh, Maxwell, <laughs> who's called Optimus Maximal, who's voiced by Von Perlman uh, in this film. And they are facing off against the Predacons and the Decepticons. And the final 15 seconds of the trailer, basically those two armies colliding. And I got excited. So yeah, fingers crossed it delivers. Um, on the human side of things, you've got Anthony Ramos, very good in, in the Heights recently, and Dominique Fishback, very good in Judas and the Black Messiah recently. Um, so I'm hopeful for their inclusion as well. I still don't believe that these films need human characters necessarily. Uh, but if you're going to have human characters, it makes sense to have them played by very good actors. And that is what those two are. So, yeah, I'm I'm optimistic uh, about Optimus Prime oh. and Co. <laughs> Optimistic. Um, uh, so, yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Please, do you have any thoughts on this? It looked very noisy and loud and <laughs> upsetting. Um, Clarice is very yeah. hyped. That's all you need to know. <laughs> there was like a bunch of like CGI junk flying at me. <laughs> Look, I'll go see it with open because I did like Bumblebee, but Haley mm. Seinfeld's not back, so I feel like we've yeah. already lost. And is Bumblebee in it? I like Bumblebee, Bumblebee. is in it. Yeah, Bumblebee is in is it. Is it still? Oh, cool. Isn't that? Is it Dylan O'Brien? Did I get that right? Who voices Bumblebee? Dylan O'Brien like did. Really well, unexpected. Well, well, <laughs> yeah, no, because the, with the Bumblebee film, um, they get into the history of Cybertron and Bumblebee a little bit. And before Megatron ripped out Bumblebee's voice box, he was voiced by Dylan O'Brien. Now that it, the film is set where it's set falling on from Bumblebee, Bumblebee no longer has his voice. He's still now using radio to communicate, so there's no need for Dylan oh, O'Brien. Yeah, yeah, radio mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. I assumed it was Dylan O'Brien doing the radio voices. (laughs) 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 Right. Well, we've got a lot to look forward to then. Mm -hmm. Uh, But for now, uh, thank you for tuning in and uh, happy viewing via whatever medium is safest for you. Please subscribe, rate and review the podcast. It makes a difference. And tweet us any questions or hot takes at Fate of Black Pod on Twitter. You can find me at Hannah Flint on Twitter or at Hannah Ines Flint on Instagram. I'm at Clarice Lou on Twitter and at Clarice Lockery on Instagram. And I'm at Amon Woman on Twitter and Instagram and Hive. Hannah, have you joined Hive yet? Oh, oh no. <laughs> no. Don't make me join another network. I can't do it. I can't handle it. I'm on too much. I'm on social media too much. I'm trying to... <laughs> Don't do this to me. You cannot find me on Hive. And if you find someone called Hannah Flint on Hive, it's not me. Okay. Just so you know. Anyway, on that bombshell, farewell, film friends. It's time to fade to black. Mm-hmm.